Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. I mean, pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. Yeah. All right. Great. Yeah. So like just a, a meta note, like a little thing that was going on in the back of my mind is that I know you've been on a lot of these podcasts. Like I'm on a lot of them too. And I and some of my audience would like to go beyond the basic information. And there's also probably like a large segment of my audience doesn't know very much about, you know, terrain theory or microbiome or soil ecology or anything yeah. like that. So people are generally better at filling in the blanks than, than we give them credit for. So I, I don't think we have to like do too much basic stuff, but you know, it might be sometimes good to kind of footnote it a little bit. Yeah. Especially around the viruses. Uh, there's so much confusion right now around virus that I think that it's, it's worthwhile to do a little bit of a dive on that. If, if that's the direction of conversation. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think I'm very comfortable with it. Like, I kind of feel like every conversation brings new space for new information to come forward, even within the basic stuff. So um, mm -hmm. I, I couldn't be more excited, Charles, to be in this conversation with you. Honestly, I've been looking forward to meeting you for years. You are just, um, honestly, I'll just get emotional if I really try to put it in words. So I won't go much further there, but I'm just so grateful. I'm just so powerfully grateful for what you have uh, done for all of us in opening up uh, a real pathway to renew the science of philosophy in our generation. I, I, it is so devoid in so much of what's going on in our generation, and I just couldn't be more excited that a, a great mind like yours has devoted itself to, to the philosophy of the future here. So thank you. Uh, for your devotion and the truth that you're channeling in for us is so, so powerful. Wow. Thank you. That's really uh, uh, special to hear that coming from you. Um, uh, Zach is uh, an MD who seems to have gone uh, a little renegade here in defying certain aspects of the official narratives. Um, I think I had like some idea of you before, but I really only came aware of you as the COVID-19 mm -hmm. crisis uh, got going. And uh, I saw you on a couple podcasts. So I'm like, okay, uh, this guy is drawing from the same spring that I am. Uh, touching on so many things that I've been devoted to for about 15 years mm -hmm. that were crazy land 15 years ago. If I joked to somebody that I was a, a neo-Lamarckian, uh, if they even knew what that was, they would roll their eyes, you know, it was better if they didn't know what it was. Uh, yeah. For those of you who do not know what that is, that's somebody who believes that acquired characteristics can be inherited through the DNA. Yeah. So like that used to be anathema to science. When I, when I tried to goad a scientist 
at some conference a couple of years ago by saying I was a Neil Lamarckian. He's like, oh, everybody's a Lamarckian today. Um, like I have this weird still level of buy-in to the established ways of conferring legitimacy on somebody. Where if if somebody who has, you know, a PhD or an MD actually agrees with me on something, I'm like, see? But then I'm like, hold on, am I just, by even doing that, am I validating that, that system of legitimacy? Right. So maybe I'll start by asking you, what happened to you? I mean, <laughs> yeah, you, <laughs> I don't, I, that's never been asked quite that way. And I appreciate that because that, that's definitely what happened is a bunch of stuff happened to me. Um, you know, it was a long process. I was 17 years in academia and kind of Western medicine paradigm and, and drug focused. I was doing chemotherapy research and I was practicing endocrinology. So a lot of diabetes and heart disease and chronic kidney disease and hormonal disorders, thyroid cancer, you know, all this stuff that's just like epidemic in our environment. So I thought I was really doing my purpose there at the University of Colorado, then the University of Virginia. And I really felt on purpose, felt very excited to be caring for patients and doing all of that. And when I got into basic science and chemotherapy research, it was very exciting to be glimpsing things on our microscopes that had never been witnessed before. And there's a real drug-like quality to that existence where you like are in this constant feedback of like, yes, you are right on the cutting edge, you're right on the cutting edge you just saw something nobody's ever seen before and you're, you push further and you can see more. And so that is the, the rabbit hole that has a drug like quality to it for a, a researcher. And ultimately, so that's the problem that we actually have in our modern science in some ways that our scientists are given the opportunity to kind of go down this addictive drug like pathway of new information, new information, uh, the heady kind of experience of I must be smarter than everybody else. And then, of course, our funding is channeled towards that. So if you have some new protein that you're following down the rabbit hole and you're one of five people in the world that are studying that, you're going to get funding. And so there's this, this warp uh, towards this kind of new information desire, this new information you know, race. And after 17 years of that, I was sitting by a bedside of a patient one evening. Uh, I had just gotten funding for my first clinical trial with this new compound that had some chemotherapeutic action. I was super excited, you know, as a scientist, and I'm taking what I learned in the laboratory and I'm about to apply it to humans for the first time. And, and uh, in that journey, you know, this woman, you know, is delivered these, you know, little blue pills that you know, the nurse has to like glove up and do all these like biohazard things just because it's a general clinical research center and there's protocols. And so this nurse coming in, look like looking like she's handling some sort of biohazard, puts these pills in this woman's bare hand and says, you can swallow those now. And the woman looks at the nurse and me and is like, so why am I safe holding this in my hand? And why am I safe swallowing this? If you have to go through all of that to protect yourself from even holding these things. And, you know, watching that happen, I, you know, it was frustrating for me because I was like, this is actually very safe. This is just protocol. But somewhere down in the core of this woman, she knew she wasn't supposed to swallow these pills. And over the next 45 minutes, I really worked to deconstruct her worldview and reconstruct my worldview in her mind and overcome her, not just her fear, but really her intuitive knowledge that this wasn't 
helpful to her and I didn't convince her to swallow these pills. You know, these pills were safe. This is chemotherapy that I had developed actually was quite safe. It was vitamin A compound and all that. But I think at that moment, I really failed as a physician because I broke that woman's spirit and I broke her trust in her own intuitive thing. And, and so I give that example of like, how can we come to do the most patriarchal, most, you know, broken pathway of honoring this human body that we're supposed to be taking care of through this addictive effort to be the first one to have the clinical trial, to be the first one to discover something. So that pathway, you know, started to really reveal itself in those, you know, 2008 to 2010, which happened to be during this massive recession that was hitting medicine and uh, the Department of Medicine and my Department of Endocrinology was collapsing uh, due to lack of funding and the, the whole research center got defunded through the NIH and all this. And so uh, there, there was a free fall happening in medicine at the same time my psychological and philosophical free fall was happening. And so that ultimately bumped me out of the common paradigm into a rural practice um, that I decided to start. I, I wanted to start a nutrition center in, in a food desert and see if I could find a pathway to reversing chronic disease in the most impoverished county in Virginia. Uh, because if I could find something that would work there, I felt like it was something that was scalable to the country and maybe help you know, stem the tide of this collapse of our entire healthcare system that was so obvious then. And <laughs> Okay. Yes. Yeah, it sounds like that was maybe just one landmark moment in a larger journey. I mean, already you were studying some agent that was not strictly a pharmaceutical agent, right? It's a, a vitamin. Yeah. But yeah. Um, and this thing about the uh, addictive quality you were talking about of being first and how that impulse then receives the boost of funding, of prestige, and so on. But then there's also the light side of the force, which is the exploration of the wonders of the universe, which is maybe what science at its best is, which then gets hijacked by the uh, financial and other institutional mechanisms that run things today. And and because most scientists that I talk to, I can detect underneath that impulse. And I wonder if how have you translated that impulse into your work today? Like what is bringing you into that state of wonder at apprehending the magnificence of biology, of the world, of, of the body? Such a good question, yeah. I think that the process from that moment uh, began was realizing that there hadn't been a single case of cancer in human history that had been caused by a lack of chemotherapy. And so when you start to you know, back yourself out of the rabbit hole and ask these root cause, root solution kind of questions and, and start to pursue answers in those directions, you realize that you, you are so far down the stream of pathology towards cancer or heart disease or whatever you're studying that you, you've failed to remember that there's a complex you know, process that's been in play for decades before the physiology that you're studying occurs. And so that, that is really the fallacy of, of Western medicine is we've become a disease-centric, disease management system. The wonder happens down at this you know, collapse of physiology rather than the wonder of 
a newborn baby and how does that baby at you know at days old know how to survive in the context of this massive ecosystem of bacteria and fungi and viruses that are teeming across its body long before it can make an immune system as we would see it and so we we directed now as a science group i think and, and as a team our attention way upstream now to ask how does physiology happen at its best instead of how does physiology function as it's collapsing mm-hmm. and, you know instead of trying to find stop gaps for for disease how do we actually start to to provide support to the fundamentals of biology under the the most ideal circumstances you know how do you support actual healing to happen and the word healing is actually really poorly used and really not used in western medicine Uh, one of my last lectures i gave at the university before leaving in 2010 uh, was uh, had the word healing in it and nobody came to the lecture and i was used to you know a couple hundred people coming to these lectures around my cancer research and everything else and but by throwing the word healing in there it sounded new agey or granola or you know fill in the blank it didn't sound scientific to these colleagues because we've we've never worked that word into our education uh, there's a lot of appall over the fact that we don't use the word nutrition much in, in our medical science or education we get maybe two or three months of, of medical education around nutrition and it's very dogmatic and old school you know food pyramid and bs but i think it's much more devastating that we're never taught about healing we've li- we literally are, are i think blinded to the, the reality that bodies heal uh, there's not a single course called physiology of healing or something like that and yet if a two-year-old trips and falls and skins their knee somehow there's the intelligence within that body to regrow different layers of tissue back to its original form the skin knows exactly where to grow to it knows how to you know cover that thing with with not so much as a scar as we age then the wounds wound repair gets a little more disorganized and we end up with scar tissue and all this stuff rather than normal physiologic tissue but nonetheless there's never a course in in your entire medical school training that will teach you any of those processes how does a scar form how does skin heal how does a liver heal after injury Uh, and yet we see all of this evidence that is happening at every age And, and so it's treated as if it's a non sequitur or non-entity when in fact of course it's the only reason we're here if we weren't healing at an extraordinary rate we, we would die very much in the first week of life i think that there are deeper ideological reasons why healing is a bit of a taboo word because as you know the word means to come to wholeness etymologically the word heal and the word whole are from the same root so to invoke a process of coming back into wholeness first requires that you believe that there is such a thing as wholeness. You don't talk about the wholeness of a, mach- of a machine, really. And if it breaks down, you don't expect it to heal. You don't expect it to get better by itself. Well, actually, I kind of do sometimes. I'm like, maybe if I you know, don't drive my car for a couple of days and let it rest, the oil will stop leaking. But generally speaking, we don't expect machines to heal. And the more that we live as a society in amongst machines, 
uh, physical literal machines as well as machine processes that have been stamped onto society through industry, the more we expect the world to be like a machine. And <clears throat> in medicine, that is translated into the paradigm of the doctor fixing the, the patient. But to recognize that life knows how to heal, that there is a innate tendency toward wholeness that is present already in the body, that kind of recasts medicine into, um, uh, into terms of, of how do we support that process? Why, if that process isn't happening, why? What's missing? And it also requires to think, us to think about what is being made whole in this process of healing. What is a self? And, and if we understand, uh, this gets to a lot of your other work that I've heard you talking about uh, around the idea that our selves are a collective, are a set of almost infinitely huge set of, of relationships that are not just the uh, expression of your uh, nuclear DNA as kind of old school biology named the self as the phenotype, the, the expression of the DNA, but it includes a host of other beings that live within our bodies. Uh, and most people are familiar with this at this point. People know that we have whatever, 10 times more bacterial cells than human cells in our bodies, and that these are an essential part of the self. And, and so this is a step in expanding our idea of wholeness, like what needs to be made whole. And then we could extend that to external relationships as well. Like, is it actually possible to be whole when you are not in ongoing relationship with other humans and the rest of life, as happens when we are locked down and quarantined, and which is a whole other topic, which we can get into as well. Um, I wonder, a lot, a lot of people are familiar with the importance of the gut microbiome and stuff, uh, but I'd like to maybe uh, get into the topic of viruses and the genetic plenum, as you might call it, and, and what, what role does the interchange of genetic information play in health? And we could even go into evolution as well. Do you, do you have a... I love it. Yeah. I knew this was going to be one of my favorite conversations of the year when you invited me. So I'm so, I'm so in love with this, you know, concept of, you know, wholeness being the the underpinnings or the, the structure function of healing and therefore because of I, I don't know what you just laid out is so important for our, all of us as an audience to you to to mull over is where have we made the mistakes in our lives of thinking that we're machine-like rather than these quantum beings that that are capable of so much and I mean, I feel conviction on a lot of levels just listening to that because it starts to get into some of my stuckness as a person. Like, why do I, you know, relate to my kids or my wife or or my coworkers in the same way day in and day out? Or what is it that I am, you know, dumbing down there to a machine-like quality? That and where am I failing to be an adaptive, creative? force in their lives and and where am i being machine like is, is a very important deep thing there so as we start to then move to this virum concept it, it's actually in line with that that uh we believe for 
you know, millennia really, but really strongly in the last hundred years or so that the genetic information that we were handed from mom and dad predicts who we are. And so we have this very Newtonian, very mechanistic belief that mom contributes half our DNA, dad contributes half the DNA, that there's a, a sperm ovum event and you get this whole whole 46 chromosomes and the whole thing goes into this cell production and then we're born and then we deteriorate from there on so that the aging process starts at birth and we just get less and less functional as time goes on but in fact it's not at all that and the last 20 years has really revealed a whole new world of plasticity in a place that we once thought was very concrete and that uh, is the genome but also the end products of that genetic information, like the brain. We used to think the brain was this you know, machine that was slowly losing connections throughout the course of its life and dysfunctioning as our computers do. And it's just as plastic in the end as the genes that would have predicted its, its original form. And the plasticity is, happens on many levels. My background is in endocrinology, and you know certainly there's an explosion now of information about how hormones and our environmental influences of pheromones and other hormones that are floating around us and everything else, as well as the hormones that we come in, in contact with in you know the home or other or, you know, situations like you've heard that women will align their periods if they are roommates for long enough and stuff like this. Like the endocrine system will adapt its, to its environment uh, to change the behavior of the organism that it's, it's governing. In the same way, and at a much deeper level, the genomics are extraordinary plastic now. And uh, this is really performed at the global level through viruses. The viruses have been miscategorized, I believe, by medicine and by the general public, and most obviously recently by the media, as part of the microbiome. That there's these you know living germs that attack us, and all this. The the word micro and the word biome, or is the microbiome is this description of small living organisms, and so. The virus being a non-living organism, a non-living you know, sheath of genetic information, already doesn't fit into this. And so if you go into Wikipedia or whatever right now and look up virus, it says it's part of the microbiome because it's so small. And so that, that's not a rational categorization. Just because it fits the first word so well, we're going to go ahead and push it into this category. Um, and so... The danger that's in this miscategorization is that we assume it has features similar to bacteria, fungi, you know, archaea, protozoa, all these microorganisms that are in the microbiome. And in fact, it's impossible that it has any of the similar traits because in fact, it's uh, an information stream coming out of biology as a whole targeted specifically at other parts of biology to update the genetics. And what we see in the virome which is a description of this you know, global genetic information that's, that's coursing out of biology, the virome is the machinery of ad adaptation, and it's the language of adaptation within life. And without the virome, we would never have had the first bacteria, the first human cell. Uh, you know, we, we've been built literally by the, the compilation and insertion of genetic information 
by these viruses into life forms around the planet for billions of years. The first viruses can be found in the fossil record some three and a half billion years ago. And so that's fascinating to me that this genetic information has been really the building block by which we now have life. And yet we've demonized it. And in demonizing the building blocks of life and perhaps more to the point, demonizing the creative force, the adaptive force of biology, what have we done? What have we so missed? And, and where are we going as a species if we remain in this demonized behavior and belief system towards this fundamental building block of life? And I think wow. the last pandemic has really shown what happens. <laughs> so so uh, right now I'm, I'm in a little bit of a dilemma. Like I, on the one hand, um, there's like a lot of basic information here that you're presenting that is super important for people to navigate our current uh, public health situation, choosing my words very carefully here. And then I also, on the other hand, really want to geek out and talk about how perhaps bacteria preceded viruses and create viruses uh, and how they transfer genes horizontally and, uh, and accelerate evolution by millions of times what it would be if it were only random mutation and, and natural selection operating. And, and so there's two different directions I want to go, but maybe, maybe I'll start with the first one. Um, yeah, the demonization of viruses is kind of inevitable when we have a broader context of seeing the world through an us versus them lens, through a competitive lens. That's right. And, and one of the expressions of that basic worldview is the uh, exclusive germ theory of disease, which says there are these pathogens out there. They don't care about you. Um, some of them are harmless because they're you know, operating on some other animal or some other plant, but some of them are basically these parasites or these predators, uh, and you have to protect yourself from them uh, because basically life is a vast war of each against all. That's how biology, the study of biology has conceived it for quite a long time. And that way of seeing it resonates with the economic circumstances that we've lived in, in modern society, where we have a, a money system that also sets us up in a war of each against all. And, and our uh, religion and our psychology uh, have, also been conditioned by this worldview, which actually goes back thousands of years to the origins of domestication and technology that made the world into an object and that conceived progress as a matter of coming to greater and greater dominance over these competitors and these indifferent forces of nature. So progress became a matter of harnessing them or insulating ourselves from them or extirpating them, destroying them. Uh, and, and so like in that basic uh, psychic field, the germ theory of disease is quite natural to, to think that. And, and it causes us to resist other ways of seeing it, like uh, bioterrain theory, which says, well, okay, and I heard you saying this on Del Bigtree's podcast, which I kind of want like everybody to watch that first just to get some of this background information. And I'm curious also, like, is there anything that you said in that podcast about COVID that, that you've changed your mind on? But anyway, maybe we can return to that. 
Um, okay, so like this, this predisposition to see the world as full of enemies. If you accept that, then you're probably going to accept the response, our public response, our government response, with the broad participation of society to COVID-19. When we see life as a community and as relationship, and we see viruses as one of the ways that these relationships are maintained, that genetic information is shared, then we ask new questions. Like, assuming that, that we see the COVID in terms of a virus, we ask, okay, well, what is this, what communication is trying to happen here? Um, yeah. And maybe we can talk about exosomes too and just the, do you want to fill people in on that? On, yeah. on how cells, I, I, yeah. I think you kind of started at a cool spot there looking back at, you know, bacteria versus viruses at the beginning of, you know, life in some ways. And there's a division in science right now as to which came first, you know, chicken or the egg here. But, um, but it is fascinating that these archaea, which are, are the ancient bacteria that preceded, you know, what we consider, uh, you know, the more, modern or, or more technologically advanced form of, of bacterial life. But the archaea um, had, a, had a different mechanism for differentiation and uh, proliferation. And you nailed one of the main mechanisms that was abundant in this was this horizontal gene transfer phenomenon where uh, any tiny little organism that abutted another one could pass its genetic information to and fro. And this still very much happens in, in bacteria in a hospital, for example, uh, when you give an antibiotic and uh, that hits, you know, one, one and a half quadrillion bacteria within your body, there's going to be a significant portion of those bacteria that have developed enough genomic alternatives and, and alternate uh, pathways for adaptation that they're not going to die under the pressure of the antibiotic. And so the, they get narrowed down into this kind of drug resistance population. They can then pass that sideways to all of the other bacteria in the environment so that the next time you see that drug, it's a lot less likely that there's going to be, you know, a knockdown of the population. The I, want, I want people to hear this. This is not that they, Zach is not saying that they're just passing the antibiotic resistance to the next generation. They're actually passing it to their friends. Yes. Like the bacteria meet up and sometimes they even conjugate. They even like open uh, a channel in their lipid membranes and actually like exchange genetic, like they're, it's like they're having sex. They're like exchanging genetic information. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, we've so long uh, considered genetic swapping as a sexual event. And that's one of the things that's limiting our worldview right now around genomics. But mm -hmm. We, have, we need to start to realize that the, the sexual transmission of information goes way beyond the genetics of, of the cell. Uh, we're now realizing in, in cloning experiments, for example, that you can't actually clone an animal unless you also clone the mitochondria mm -hmm. inside of those animals, inside of the cell you're trying to clone. And the mitochondria are these little bacteria guys. A mitochondria is an ancient archaea that's then absorbed by a methane-producing bacteria. And this happened, you know, billions of years ago. And it became a very important part of the infrastructure of multicellular life is that these organisms could live inside of eukaryotic cells and produce energy through this, you know, 
fermentation or ultimately oxidative phosphorylation or, or oxygen-rich uh, energy production. And in, in that, you know, archaea and, and within that is this little strip of DNA, this little ancient piece of, of genomics, and it has extraordinary variability such that if you look in a single human cell, you will have somewhere between 200 and 2,000 mitochondria living inside that cell. And if you look across the genomics of that mitochondrial population within a single cell, there's massive variation. And so uh, we're starting to realize that the massive variations of genomics within the mitochondria are constantly swapping information with the nuclear DNA that was received by mom and dad human. That nuclear DNA is being changed and transformed by the mitochondrial DNA that's responding to its environment second to second. And so we're starting to realize that even the phenotype of a single cell or therefore a whole human body is not determined by mom and dad's DNA very well. It's, it's, that's a rough template and then it's the environmental influence on the mitochondria, which are the microbiome. And then as soon as the child is born, the vast amount of genomic information that's available within the bacteria and the fungi of the gut or the skin, or now we realize that there's fungi and bacteria in every single organ system in a healthy state. So the brain has bacteria and fungi in it, the, the liver, the kidneys. And so without all of this genomic input, we don't actually look like who we are you know, today. And so we're super plastic in that way. And so in the same way that these archaea were horizontally gene transferring information to their their buddies so that they could immediately adopt this antibiotic resistance same thing happens in weeds in a field when we spray herbicides and pesticides on large-scale farms there's always a couple weeds that will have a genetic resistance to that and they can horizontally gene transfer to the other plants such that even in the same uh, you know field during the same you know, season without reproduction happening, you'll see uh, increased resistance happen across the strains. And that's so, incredible. I just, I just love that. And and they're doing that with viruses. Then that's the main among plants and animals. Would that would you consider that the main avenue of horizontal gene transfer? Yeah, I, I mean the viruses. The word viruses needs to be a little bit loosely held there, just in the sense that uh, you mentioned the word exosome earlier, and exosomes are you know, uh, an external transfer of genetic information over short to long distances. Uh, they are packaged in a little, you know, envelope of, of phospholipids, this little, you know, safe package of genetic information can be sent out into the air and then transferred. And so if we, if we consider that word virus very loosely, just to mean the exchange of genetic information through space and time, then yes, it's, it's all done virally. And I would say some of it's done by exosome, some of it's done by more of a classical virus kind of thing. The differences between those two seem to be, again, starting to blur, but historically, meaning five years ago, like all of the science is so new now, but five, 10 years ago, I would have said, well, a virus has all of these very intentional surface proteins that target it to a specific tissue in the recipient. And so I'll make a virus. Like It's important for us to remember every coronavirus ever in history that infected a human being was made by a human being. We make these things and we make them intelligently designed to hit the recipient at a very specific receptor. And so we'll cover the viral package of information with a smart bomb kind of 
approach of saying, okay, we're going to move this thing to right in the right location. And the word bomb is very erroneous there. I should use like smart delivery system or something because it's, again, that the bomb word harkens into something that's going to damage something. But in fact, it's an intelligent update. And so uh, picture this more like uh, your IT personnel coming into your computer and saying, okay, I need to traffic this new piece of code to the hard drive or this needs to update the screensaver or whatever it is. And so they put a piece of data on each end of the code that'll target it to the right place within your computer. In the same way, when I put out viruses, I'm going to target that specifically to, in the case of coronavirus, ACE2 receptors inside the lung and vascular system of the recipient because I'm trying to update my own genomics to handle new toxins in my environment, things like cyanide or air pollution or herbicides and pesticides and food. And so I'm adapting to this toxic environment that I'm breathing every day and I need a genetic update to make a more resilient lung surface. Uh, or vascular tree behind that lung uh, to adapt to this new toxic environment as, as we start to approach some sort of massive extinction threat. And so the, the biology is always updating, always this. An exosome historically has been thought to be less smart targeted. It's just a, it's just a packet of information that can, can bind to the surface of any cellular material and, and be absorbed. And so it's more of a general, here's some new genetic information I'm sending out as much to tell you what I'm, what's going on in my body as anything else. And so I think that many of us in, in the science realm of genomics right now think that much of the genomic information that we exude in the form of exosomes is not to go and update other people's genomics, but as much as it is to tell them, I'm under this kind of stress, you might want to prepare your body for this stressor. And so it, instead of integrating the, the DNA uh, from a, an exosome, which can be the large genes of RNA and DNA, but it's more common that it's actually microRNA. MicroRNA don't ever go to make a protein. MicroRNA are actually modifiers. They're, they're co-repressors and co-activators of other genes that we're, we're expressing right now. And so by exuding microRNA, if I'm sitting in a room with you, within a, a few minutes, you're starting to get updated as to what are the stressors I've been under over the last 24 hours and what genes have I activated? And maybe it's not just stressors. Maybe I've had a really wonderful, creative 24 hours and I wrote a piece of music yesterday and I was playing guitar by the pool and I was relaxed and you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to turn on a different set of genes, which we're going to express these microRNA that are exuding in these packets of information out of my breath, out of my sweat, etc. And so I'm putting out this cloud of information to tell you as somebody in my proximity what my last 24 hours has looked like. And it's not surprising that we start to see patterns of diseases in families that make it look like it's genetic. Type 2 diabetes, for example, if your mom and dad had type 2 diabetes, the likelihood of you having is high. And yet the risk factors around type 2 diabetes are far more environmental than they are genomic. And so this is how we can start to get familial traits or familial patterns of disease when in fact they're not genetic, they're environmental. But through our environmental exposure, we express a microRNA exosomal experience and then everybody adapts to our stress around us in a similar fashion. Mm -hmm. So that's the overall kind of 
you know, terrain. Viruses really are intended to be large RNA DNA strands that will get integrated into specific tissues to do new information adaptation uh, in real time. Whereas the microRNA are, are more of a, a short-term modification of behavior of that, that partner's genome, but not necessarily insertion into their genome. Uh-huh. So I'm just curious. So the viruses have all these surface proteins that allow them to be taken up by certain receptors, whereas the exosomes, I've seen the pictures, they, they're just basically a, a smooth membrane. That's right. right? They, don't have, they don't have these proteins on the surface. So, but they still have to get taken up somehow by cells in order to convey the information that they're trying to convey, um, which, okay, as you say, is their function isn't to pass GNA for incorporation into the chromosomes, but it's just to let them know maybe what's happening. Uh, but it still needs to be taken up somehow. So is there like, so maybe some of these receptors, like how does that work? Like the, the ones that are keyed by proteins, then maybe there's some, uh, those are the effector proteins and there's like some other step that, that actually intentionally transports it to the nucleus. And I mean, like what's actually going on? Yeah, I, I'm going to say some things here that everybody needs to keep in mind is, is uh, current science. And so in five years, this is probably not going to hold up. But because this is such new science, again, I think we're, I already want to tell you that this is a gray zone, that we're going to find out that exosomes actually can target specific protein binding and all of that. And I have some hunches as to how that happens, but they're nothing more than hunches at this point. But they, the way in which they bind could be as simple as phospholipid membranes like to uh, combine, right? And so mm -hmm. if you're lacking extracellular matrix, which is this complex structure of proteins that hold one human cell adjacent to another human cell to create an intelligent barrier of the gut or intelligent vascular tree when you're lacking that extracellular matrix to to make a multicellular organ system you know differentiate know its own structure function in each different organ system then phospholipid membranes without that protein scaffolding have a tendency to want to to mix together you can picture like two oil droplets moving together on a hot pan and as soon as they touch they combine Right. And, and so that's how two phospholipid membranes that are not limited by you know, protein ultrastructure can behave. And uh, because exosomes are, are so devoid of, or at least uh, have far less protein expression within them and, and across their surface, they're likely to combine with any phospholipid membrane that they touch. And so I think it's going to be that kind of oil to oil combination event that opens it up and what it's dumping into the cell at that point is this tiny microRNA uh, material that can quickly transit uh, to the RNA uh, transcript uh, translation to proteins and so that's happening in the cytoplasm of the cell if you go deep into the cell at the nuclear level so inside the cell is another cell that we call the nucleus and so you have to go through another phospholipid membrane and in there you have DNA being tr translated to RNA and RNA then leaves the nucleus and turns into a protein or codes for a protein in the cytoplasm. At each of those locations, the microRNA can bind to the enzymes that are responsible for doing all that translation work. 
And so in binding it, it can either show an affinity for the behavior of translation or it can block, the, block uh-huh. that. So it can change the proteins that are being produced without having to write itself into, into the genes. That's exactly right. right. Yeah, and, so it's right. modifying the behavior of genes without uh, inserting itself into the genome. Right. Okay. I mean, there's this whole uh, concept of pleomorphism that mm-hmm. viruses possibly originate as exosomes and then they kind of grow or change into something more and more complex that eventually becomes something like a virus. Uh, do, you, do you have any opinions about that theory? Yeah, I think yeah, the, life is definitely pleomorphic. So we should have a loose hand on all of this religious orthodoxy of categorization that we're so into in science. And so mm-hmm. we love to believe that a fungi is a fungi of this specific species and all of this. And I think as we continue to advance our science of genomics, we're having this humbling experience of realizing how plastic everything is. And so pleomorphism, pleomorphism as a concept, I think, is, is in its infancy. I think that as we start to understand much deeper than the biology, we start to understand quantum physics of cellular events, uh, it's going to get really bizarre uh, because mm-hmm. we're starting to realize that there's so much electrical energy that's produced by mitochondria, for example, within a cell, that it's quite possible that we could transmute elements within the periodic table within our cells. And this has been yep. extensively studied, you know, back to the, the book, Biological Transmutation, it was written in the 60s. And, and Louis Curvron. Yeah, Kirkman's yeah. work. Yeah. And there's a whole, I mean, there's a whole lineage of, of people who have studied that. That's, and that's going down a really deep rabbit hole. Maybe, yeah, there's a, certain, there's a certain territory that if you go there, like, I mean, all of a sudden you are in violent contradiction to pre- prevailing paradigms of biological <laughs> whoa, whoa transmutation. Whoa, us. Whoa, us. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and, and like, I love going there, but, it's, but no way, like, I don't think people have to believe in biological transmutation of elements or, you know, biological cold fusion or anything like that. Uh, in order to broaden the concept of contagion. And of, I wanted to ask you about contagion because, uh, so, you know, here you have the the dominant pathogenic model of contagion. And then both of us are familiar with people who radically deny that. And even to go so far as to say, there is no such thing as viral contagion, you know, and they cite these experiments, which which I, I buy, you know, that that they would take, mucus from flu people with the flu and actually like swab it into the nostrils of healthy people and they wouldn't get sick you know usually they wouldn't get sick yeah and then i'm like okay and why because the terrain wasn't um accommodating to that yeah and i'm like okay um but here we have a situation where the terrain is very very accommodating to uh, a lot of what we call illnesses, because given the stressors that afflict modern humans, there's a lot of uh, software upgrades that need to happen. Uh, to, so th- just as uh, genetic mutation and viral contagion increases when uh, bacteria or weeds are subject to antibiotics or Roundup, so also our own uh, we would, in the old language, call it susceptibility, is heightened when we are subject to all of these new environmental stressors. Uh, 
which could be electromagnetic, chemical, psychological, and so forth. And so we need these upgrades, you know, we need this new information coming in. And I would say, you know, maybe sometimes that upgrade is such a massive upgrade that the system, the body can't handle it. It's like too much information. I can't make that big a change that quickly. The upgrade process is uncomfortable. It's like maybe, maybe the, the symptoms of a viral infection are basically the process of integrating all this new information. And for somebody who's very weak or very elderly, maybe that they can't even handle that upgrade process. But as far as contagious, so some people say then viral contagion has never been proven. And I'm like, hold on a second. Like, what about chicken pox? You know, like you take your kid, it's not that he's, he's, you know, got a quote, weak immune system. I mean, that whole concept of weak immunity is ridiculous. People can be uh, very susceptible to one thing and not another thing. It's not like your army is weak and any invader anyway, but, 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 you know, you take your kid to a chicken pox party because you understand that children need this uh, upgrade, this kind of information, um, chicken pox, measles, mumps, you know, some people believe that these are actually important, important challenges uh, on a physical and psychological level. Like, wow, I got better. You know, I had this disease and I got better. That's a, a landmark in psychological development. But I go back to the discovery of viruses, uh, which what it got it started was the tobacco mosaic virus, which was discovered because um, because of contagion. They they saw it trans you know going from plant to plant. They took some of the serum and they put it on another plant, the healthy plant. And the healthy plant got sick, and it wasn't because these plants were generally subject to a stressor necessarily. It looked an awful lot like contagion, and then they tried to identify the contagious agent um, by filtering out every particle they could filter out in those days, and they couldn't filter it out. Um, so originally it was called a non-filterable virus. And sometimes they even thought maybe it's liquid, like maybe it's not even a particle at all until they developed more powerful microscopes and they did then find viral particles that they could identify. Um, and that's kind of how virology got started in, in my, as far as I know. So you're not saying that there's no such thing as contagion or even the term contagion, I think would, we would agree that that's problematic, but there you want to riff on this? Yeah. yeah, I think you just hit it. And so it, the, the transfer of genetic information through viruses and exosomes is constant and, and it's happening at such a rate that it boggles the mind. So there's an estimated 10 to the 31 viruses in the air we breathe. There's an estimated 10 to the 31 viruses in the ocean. There's an estimated 10 to the 30 viruses in the soils of the earth. So these are numbers that are, you know, 10 to the 31, for example, is about 10 million times more than our stars in the entire universe. So these numbers are so vast. They, there's literally the reality that you can't take a breath. You can't, you know, walk a step in the, in the world that we have developed in for and thrived in for 200,000 years without being in constant interaction with these viruses and the genomic information within them. And it's important. You need this constant, you know, updating as you were speaking to earlier. So this is where we run into the problem of categorizing viruses in the same, you know, catch-all title of the microbiome. Because bacteria and fungi produce energy, which means they need a food source, which means 
if you have a, an unbalanced ecosystem, those bacteria and fungi can outstrip the competition for those resources of food. And so that's what it looks like when you get cellulitis or die of pneumonia in a hospital, which is what everybody who dies from you know, COVID complications or dying from downstream events within the vasculature and you know, bacterial pneumonias that have nothing to do with the, the trigger that may have been a viral update. And so the, the phenomenon that we, we see in hospitals around bacteria and fungi is this phenomenon is you have living organisms that are competing for an ever more scarce you know, resource. The more you try to sterilize the environment, the more abnormal the ecosystem gets, and the more you know, aggressive everybody needs to get for those limited resources. And so that's where we see overwhelming infection and pathogenesis happens in a field of organic soils and wildflowers and massive biodiversity of a jungle, you don't see viruses affecting the plants. You don't see viruses taking up. It's only when we start to monocrop anything, and that's why it wasn't really discovered until tobacco is, until we started monocropping you know, potatoes in the great Irish famine or you know, the phenomena of, of corn, soybean, and wheat and all of this, until we started monocropping, we never saw viruses behave at all pathogenic you know and so i would argue that it very much was a change in terrain that led to the emergence of the discovery of the tobacco mosaic viruses you laid out so beautifully and to say that they were unhealthy plants is not like you said well it's not like they were stressed or had anything this was a healthy field of tobacco well it's because we keep trying to define health within a single organism that we're failing there. And in the same way, we fail to identify what a healthy immune system is, as you pointed out there. Health actually, now that we back up to the 30,000 you know, foot view that we've seen in the last 20 years, is, has nothing to do with the individual organism. Health is entirely dictated by, entirely necessitated through, and entirely you know, created by biodiversity. And as soon as you lack biodiversity, you become vulnerable because the genetic updates that are happening to the virome, for example, are unbalanced in their messaging. You don't have you know, 10 to the 31 viruses in that same pocket of air because you've sprayed herbicide pesticide or you've you know, created a monoculture environment where you've overplowed the soils, you've destroyed the bacterial microbiome, so they're not producing the same exosome-like you know, bacteriophage introduction of viral information in the environment. And so a single virus that now blows into that environment can overwhelm the genetic you know, uh, uh, matrix or the genetic update uh, process that's going on, and it can take on the behavior of a pathogenic process when, in fact, there was no pathology intended. The virus that was causing that had no intention of harming tobacco. It was simply giving it a, a genomic update, but the terrain had become this monocultural environment. And so we suffer a very severe version of this philosophy when we look at a child today. We think we have to protect this child from all the bacteria, the viruses, and everything else. And so we want that child, like you mentioned with the chicken pox example, we want that child to be introduced to the, to the maximum amount of biodiversity as early as possible to make for the most resilient biologic organism possible. We've taken the opposite approach. We, we put mom on antibiotics now while that child's in the birth canal because mom had strep B or something like that 
some bacteria in her vaginal swab. And so now we're, we're depleting the entire ecosystem as the child comes through the birth canal. And, or even worse, we don't allow mom to move into a normal you know, system of labor and we induce early or you know, somehow otherwise compromise the natural process towards labor. And we do a C-section, which is a completely sterile delivery of that child. No contact with mom's you know, vaginal flora that will you know, no longer populate that child. Instead, the child gets pulled out of this surgical incision sterily and then put on a, a hospital gurney for the APGAR score, immediately adopting the three or five strains of bacteria that are, are common to the, the stripped-down version of the microbiome in the hospital. So it's in this monocultural behavior of tobacco, wheat, soybean, children, that we have extracted biology from its biodiverse capacity for balance, and we create the appearance of pathogenesis. And so I would argue that you know, chickenpox is a very important update to the organism, and the fact that it manifests like it does, it, it, it integrates into the dermis, it integrates into very you know, areas of the immune system, meaning the respiratory tree, the gut, and the skin, which is, dominates 99% of the, what we call the immune system these days. And so that virus is updating all of that information throughout. And if that child now goes on uh, through a healthy, or goes on beyond the chickenpox, we see that that child's more resilient against you know, the confusion of autoimmune disease and has reduction in cancer risk and things like this. Whereas if that child never gets exposed to these you know, genomic updates that challenge the immune system to get to a higher level of intelligent surveillance, we see higher rates of you know, these chronic diseases emerge in the decades after. There's been right. some interesting graphs that are hard to find on the web because they seem to get taken down pretty quickly. But there's some interesting graphs that have been out there in the, the published data showing the rates of autoimmune disease since the 1950s. And what you see is this leap in, in the prevalence of autoimmune disease every time we introduce another vaccine meaning as we disrupt the experience of this natural uh, genomic update and the appropriate stimulation of the immune system that would follow, we, we develop confusion about what's outside and what's inside. Autoimmune means our immune system is now mistaking our own body for a, a foreign invader. And so our intelligence to our own biologic self-identity relies on this external information coming in from the viruses, bacteria, fungi, and the rest. Yeah, the, the real pandemic of our time is autoimmunity. And it, yes. it, it doesn't lend itself to the same mentality that we conquering evil and, and finding the bad guy and destroying something and controlling something as easily as so-called contagious diseases because it's the body itself that has that is rejecting other parts of itself, which is kind of a, you know, metaphorically, it's metaphorically true for he, the human relationship to the planet where we are destroying parts of nature that are actually parts of ourself, but we don't recognize it. Um, but I want to just sum up here. So earlier you were basically to sum it up and you can tell me if this is accurate or not, that what looks like virally spread disease is happening kind of for two reasons. One um, is that we are facing so many stressors, we need so many updates that we're, we need to get these, you know, we need to get these updates and it can be kind of difficult to in integrate the information. And, but what you added to that is also that 
um, we have destroyed much of our ability to even receive those updates through the decimation of the microbiome, for example. And that's right. Deeper than that, you know, and again, people can go watch that Del Big Tree thing if you want more detail on this, but not only did we destroy the biodiversity, we also, uh, also alter our receptors for these viruses in an abnormal way. And we also mm -hmm. alter the way in which the viruses move through the atmosphere in a couple ways. So first of all, when a virus is produced, it's supposed to disperse very evenly through the air through aerosols. Very small percentage of you know viral transfer over the surface of the planet is done through respiratory droplets, which is of course why everybody's wearing masks right now and everything else. They think they're going to stop this virus from moving around. In fact, it, it moves most you know most aggressively and most functionally through the air, combined with dust particles, or most aggressively, it looks like to carbon particulate from air pollution. So PM two point five or particulate matter two point five microns in size is very good at binding influenza and uh, these other viruses like corona. And so coronaviruses binds to that air pollution in an unnatural way. You get this clumping of the viral genomics. And so now if you breathe in this clump of air pollution, you might have you know, dozens of viruses in a very small amount of space rather than you know, dispersed throughout that. And when I say dozens, it's probably more like millions. But that you're, you can see this clumping phenomenon happen in which when that hits the, the receptors of your lung, the ACE2 receptors, you're going to pull more virus into that very small you know, cellular environment than you would have otherwise. And so we altered the air terrain by which it transits to create an artificial you know, hyper-intensity to the, the viral signal. And then we upregulate the receptor through our pharmacy. And so a couple of common drugs that treat cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and kidney disease are statins and ACE inhibitors. And it turns out those three comorbidities, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, mm -hmm. and, and kidney disease, are exactly what predicted the death uh, from COVID-related experiences. And so what's happening with those two drugs is that they upregulate the ACE2 receptors. And so now if you have pharmacologically upregulated elderly population with cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and hypertension slash end-stage renal disease, you're going to now have a propensity to deliver an extreme load of genetic information into these elderly people. And so the virus may have been benign 150 years ago uh, when we didn't have air pollution at this current concentration or if we you know, didn't have the pharmaceuticalization of these elderly peoples. But nonetheless, you know, respiratory death is common. It's the fifth leading cause of death in the world. And so it, it kills millions of people every year. And as you know, hyperbolic as we want to get in our, our estimates of how many people are dying related to COVID, it's still far under the total amount that we would expect year on year for respiratory death to occur. And so it's this malfeasance of... <laughs> of information and this PR campaign, this fear campaign that was given to this name of a virus that happens annually. Every year, new viruses will come through for genetic updates. And if we change the terrain such that, like you said, we can alter the, the physiology on the back end of that, we can develop complications. But again, we should remember that people aren't dying from a virus. The virus is gone within three to five days of you know, peak production of the virus and the initial symptoms. 
And people aren't dying three to five days later. People are dying weeks later, typically, from this. And it's way downstream as the physiology has broken down in a hundred other ways. And so nobody's dying from a virus. People may have been triggered by a viral exposure, but it's the, it's the endogenous or, or it's the pre-existing imbalance within that biology that's then leading to the mortal event. And ironically, our responses to COVID-19 intensify the imbalances. And, 100%. And, and the more, so the more that we destroy our, our microbiome and our immune system in general, the more we need to protect ourselves from these pathogens. And the ways that we protect ourselves prevent the replenishment of our inner ecosystems even more, requiring even more and more until like you end up in a future where everybody has to live in an aseptic bubble all the time. That's right. Yeah, that is the direction we're moving. You know, you saw images of, you know, people dressed up in hazmat suits with with dusters, you know, walking the streets of China and Korea, spraying, you know, herbicide pesticides into the air. They they repurposed, you know, uh, snowmaking machines in Switzerland and, and Italy to spray these toxins into the air to kill the microbiome. You can't kill viruses in the same way you do bacteria and fungi. Uh, you know, you can try to sterilize the air, but like you said, you just predispose that same pocket of air and then coming yeast to more abnormal, you know, influx of, of genomic information and the rest. So uh, you're exactly right. We're, we're behaving in this warfare mentality still when in fact we need to realize that health is only going to come from restoration of biodiversity and vitality of life within our soil systems, within our air systems and water systems. And if that was our response, uh, we would be doing the right thing. And the silver lining to the pandemic for me was that the, the population seemed to know what to do. We saw seeds sell out across the country. We saw people planting gardens that have never been planted before. We see a revival of the victory garden concept where we could grow our own food in the backyards to overcome the fragility of our food systems that we saw so exposed through this pandemic. And so the people did the right thing, I think, finally starting to realize the government's not going to take care of us here. They don't even know what's going on. They don't know how to react to this situation. And so if anybody's going to take care of us, we have to do this ourselves. And so I'm very excited about the realization that uh, we are going to have to make a local solution to these global crises that are at hand. And we also have to recognize that we are going extinct. The, The population as a whole uh, it is very easy to map out our own extinction over 70 to 80 years. And so over the next seven to eight decades, we could go extinct as a species. That's 7.8 billion people that are going to disappear and die through horrific processes or subtle processes. And so this was a ripple effect. This, this pandemic, as it was termed, will not even slightly change the, the, the uh, population growth of, of the humans. And so this was a ripple, and we behaved incorrectly at the, at the governmental level, the bureaucratic levels, at the kind of public health response levels. We did exactly the wrong things over and over again. And so if we don't quickly learn from that, then we're going to accelerate this extinction event. We could reverse this extinction event, however, if we look back to the viruses. And I think this is an interesting place for us to maybe... I, I, I can't wait to hear your response to this because I think it's yeah. fascinating. Viruses, it turns out, 
it have exploded biologic diversity intelligence every time there's been an extinction event. And so five great extinction events preceding this one that we're in, and every time that's happened, the amount of stress you put all of those organisms that are going extinct through produce a massive amount of genomic information for adaptation that then results once things settle down and the extinction you know, stressor disappears, there's so much more genetic variation on the planet that was created by this stress of the extinction event that we get more biodiversity, we get more intelligence of, uh, of life after that, that extinction event. And so if we were to halt in the next decade or two, our extinction event behaviors and the stressors we're putting on the planet, we could see the most explosive biodiversity recovery of the planet that it's ever had before because that's its pattern. And I kind of want to stick around to see that. I want to play in that new co-creative environment where the updated genomic information of the stressors we've caused creates life more abundant, more biodiverse, and more extremely beautiful than anything we've seen before. So that, that's compelling to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that will happen if we don't continue to suppress that process. I don't, I don't, I don't think that, that what you speak of is an inevitability, however, but I do think that it is a possibility uh, that requires us to embrace that and on a deeper level to embrace what we began with, the movement of life toward wholeness and not only toward wholeness, but toward increasing complexity and the expansion of that whole to include more and more levels of organization. Uh, life unfolds in complexity naturally. And, and, and there are, as you were saying, like these crisis points that precede the next explosion, uh, the next unfolding. And this particular one involves us and we can choose to be part of it or we can choose to fight it. In your, in your interview with Del Bigtree, you, um, a phrase struck me. You said that the prevalence of childhood chronic conditions has increased from 1.2% to like 52% in the last, I can't remember how many years it was. Since the 1960s, yeah. Yeah, and, and you said, but and you, when you said that, they said, we wonder why childhood uh, chronic diseases have increased. Um, and you were speaking in terms of, I think the, I don't know if it was birth practices or, or all this other stuff, but I thought, gosh, I wish that we wondered why. <laughs> but are we actually, are very many of us actually wondering why? Are we kind of taking it for granted? Do we, like, taking it for granted that half the kids in class are going to be allergic to one thing or another? And, yeah. and if we take it for granted, then we, because we are very clever, we adapt to it and we create these technological crutches that, that enable us to, to cope with our degraded conditions, our, our, our lower levels of health. You know, you can't go up the stairs anymore, you get a chairlift. You know, you can't breathe outdoor air anymore, you get air filters. A lot of people cannot breathe. I'm at, at my brother's farm right now. Um, when I come here, I have several days of, quote, allergies, because the level of pollen is just enormous. And it takes me a few days to stop streaming mucus and having puffy eyes all the time. And, and I'm fortunate to be able to adopt to it, maybe because, you know, I haven't been to a doctor or taken antibiotics in the last 30 years. And maybe because I, you know, raw sauerkraut or whatever I do, that at least I can make this adaptation. But a lot of people, um, people have been in 
in a kind of lockdown and for 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 decades um and uh, have not had the the blessings that i've had of of access to alternative information and you know people are are in poverty uh people are are there's there's all kinds of reasons we can't blame i i guess i just wanted to mention that it's not like oh people are so stupid they're not taking care of themselves it's like we live in conditions where people don't even know how to take care of themselves and so there's a lot of people who have become technologically dependent and i don't see any guarantee that this will not continue forever and that instead of facing extinction we will face a kind of nightmare to me at least a nightmare dystopia uh where the decimation the destruction the the biocide continues until we have one of those like jetsons futures where everybody's always in a bubble the atmosphere is toxic there's almost nothing alive on earth and everything that is is a danger to us because our uh, ability to live in these relationships has been destroyed and i feel like this is a dimension of the choice that faces us right now which fundamentally is do we step into service to life or do we continue the war on life the suppression of life the conquest of life oh, so well laid out there it's it's your spot on as always in that you know i think we are the frog in the boiling water you know we we don't realize how hot it's gotten and that's why i'm constantly trying to point to where we were just in the 1960s and 70s like when i was born this is not how the world was <laughs> like within my single lifetime you can see that we have radically changed our resilience and we are collapsing biologically on a planet that is collapsing biologically we're losing one species every 20 minutes now and we've had a 10,000 fold increase in the extinction rate on the planet over the last 40 years that that can't be denied that is scientifically evidenced and yet like you said we're oblivious to it because we can't see it we can't you know in our daily routines experience it and so we're oblivious to it and my alarm and my you know dystopian you know hopelessness that sets in sometimes is that i see that everything you just described around the technological you know solutioning and palliation of of this toxic lifestyle that we've adopted is is manifest at the worst levels in our most wealthy populations and that really concerns me if this was just an issue of poverty and poor you know access to healthcare then then that would seem feasibly but when i go to new york city and i i meet with some of the most you know high net worth people i know their children are on antidepressants by the time they're in, you know in, in the you know eight or nine years old the, you know pre-puberty we have children on on antidepressants there's actually a big you know event every year now for pediatricians on how to start antidepressants in children under the age of two you know this should not be happening this is and yet we are constantly sliding down this track of accepting a new normal of disease prevalence, a new normal of biologic dependence on pharmacy that is most adopted and most aggressively supported by these high socioeconomic classes. Uh, the very people that we would hope would have the, the, the most time and space to have a creative you know, thought process around this are those showing the least creativity often. And so that's, that's extremely concerning to me. I, I think that shows that we've we have a 
a perturbation not in biologic health we have a perturbation in philosophical awareness we have a philosophical crisis that's that's creating a medical crisis and uh, that's where you step in <laughs> so you need to fix everything <laughs> Charles you know we were depending on you to bring us into focus from a philosophical standpoint of who are we why are we here where are we going these fundamental three questions continue uh, to be remiss and or, or not you know, addressed by our daily experience and therefore we miss in these big categories of soil, water, and air, nutrition, fundamental movement, you know, change in environments, you know, seasonal experiences, change in temperature of skin, we're in air conditioning, we're in everything. So we have, we have dumbed down the human experience through the technological events, but I think it's all just symptomatic of this collapse of philosophical awareness. And so thank you for your diligence and hard work in asking those deeper questions. Well, I think that symptom and cause are hard to distinguish here. You know, the philosophy draws from the system and the system draws from the philosophy. Hmm. And, and so I think that any radicalism, any even small arena of radicalism, even, you know, if you're just entering through body ecology or, you know, the, uh, or soil, uh, food, uh, birth, we identify this is wrong. This can this shouldn't be this way. And then, in the beginning, the the budding radical thinks if we just fix this, everything will be fine. But then you realize that this birth or death or um, you know health or soil, agriculture, food it's it's embedded in all of our other systems and reflects all of our other systems. And so it, it's it's the paradox. Wow, this isn't going to change unless everything else changes. But it's also true that if this changes, everything else will change. So I, I, uh, that's just my way of saying that um, I really also honor and appreciate your work and the portal that it offers to the full spectrum transition that is possible for us. Yes. Now I, I think it's through a relationship ultimately that we'll do this. And so I'm just so glad to be in a relationship with you now. And uh, your whole community is an inspiration. You know, this this long-form philosophical format that you have to uh, your podcast and so many other podcasts popping up now with these long-form discussions is hopeful to me. Like, yeah, we are an ingenious, creative peoples when we're connected. And so uh, my passion is around that. And so, for example, we're we're trying to extrapolate with the fractal truth that biology and life on earth is only manifest through communication of biodiverse societies we need to, to rethink our energy sector and our and our technology information technology spaces with that in mind and so for example one of our my companies is working on a reinvention of the internet to envision what would how would fungi and bacteria uh, create an internet and in fact they obviously have and so we've studied that in the soil systems and all of that and so we're now trying to re replicate that at the at the societal scale for humanity to start to communicate much differently and with this mm -hmm. different value system reflected in that that society so that all of the internet activity actually is empowered by a currency that it is fundamentally attached to the necessary resources uh, and necessary regenerative resources within 
a natural habitat. So um, I think if we redesign these things that way, we're going to see a different world quickly emerge because humans, once connected and once given free access to information, uh, tend to do the right thing. We tend to innovate in the right direction. If people want to uh, find out more about your various projects and your work, should they, is there a website they should go to? How, how do they find you? Yeah, we're, we're starting to get those up in the public domain, but uh, ZachBushMD.com is my education website, and uh, you know, there's lots to dive into there. We've got a new website you know, rolling out in the next couple of weeks even with even more in-depth information and opportunities to engage. Um, hmm. We're really looking for more and more community engagement there. So ZachBushMD.com. Uh, for some of the soil science and a deep dive on how all that works, ionbiome.com can get you some more information there. Uh, it's, it's a really exciting process that we're seeing happen around this science that as people start to embrace the microbiome, they make simple changes in their day that, that really reprograms repro their biology. And one of these is an Instagram phenomenon that we, we started a hashtag breathe your biome with the understanding that if you breathe diverse ecosystems, you'll ultimately uh, create a more diverse microbiology within your own uh, mm -hmm. organ systems. And so hashtag breathe your biome, if you just page through those you know, tens of thousands of pictures that have been uploaded there, you see children and, and multi-generational families out in nature and in waterfalls and in jungles and forests. And just a quick page through there, you can see, oh, this is, this is what I want to do with my family. This is how mm -hmm. I want my life to look. And so I'm, I'm encouraged by the power of images and the, the power. Mm -hmm. We're such a visual species. Yeah. And so uh, hashtag breathe your biome might, might open and up those if you're a parent or something. That biome should include breathing, you know, I mean, not just in nature, but with other humans too. Yes. You know, the Maori in New Zealand, when they greet each other, I, I, you know, they do this with, with strangers too. You put your forehead together and you intentionally share a breath. Wow. You breathe wow. each other's breath. And boy, wow. you're getting lots of, you know, you're really getting a much more diverse biome. And that's like exactly the opposite of what we're being told to do right now. So, yeah. And there's um, good science that, that protects you. So there's a nice study in influenza, for example, that showed that individuals to get more than seven hugs a day had a 35% decrease in, in symptoms of influenza. Wow. Um, and so it, it's, it does immediately have a benefit by that human to human contact. So, so I, I would love to keep talking to you for many more hours, but maybe we can uh, do that another time. There's a lot of topics that I didn't even get to bring up that I was intending to. So maybe we uh, put a pause on it right now and uh, resume another day. Love it. I love it. Yeah. Thank you for the conversation. Yeah, thank you, Zach. This has been a new and ancient story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.